for me, this work is purpose-driven. This work is about trying to create a world that is better for people with disability than the world that my brother lived. What I want to achieve by the end of my life is that no young person with disability has to experience the challenges and the hardships that my brother faced. That's what I'm about. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. We're proud to present Courageous Conversations, a podcast series focusing on the tough decisions people have made to put themselves on a pathway to success. This episode is brought to you by Connect Now, who makes the business of moving easier for both you and your clients. For more information, visit connectnow.com.au. Please welcome your host, Leanne Pilkington. Hey everyone, Leanne Pilkington with you for the latest edition of Courageous Conversations. And with me, I have got Laura O'Reilly from Fighting Chance. How are you, Laura? Really well. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I didn't know anything about Fighting Chance until Pete Matthews, our RAINSW president, has chosen it as his charity of choice for REI this year. And he spoke about it a little bit at WIRE and I was absolutely fascinated. So for everybody listening and watching, what is Fighting Chance? Before getting to what is Fighting Chance, I might back it up and just mention a very little bit about me because it's the, sort of the content I do. So I'm the sibling of a person with disability, so there are three kids in my family. I'm the oldest, and my youngest brother, Shane, had cerebral palsy. So had a physical disability. He needed support with pretty much every activity, and he also had a moderate intellectual disability as well. But that one was the least of who he was, Leanne. Like, he was this amazing, vibrant, funny, interesting person, amazing memories, just an awesome human being. But we saw in about sort of 2008, 2009, when the kids in our family were kind of coming to the end of school period and going to university and starting out our adult lives, what I experienced was I was at Cambridge University. I planned to be a lawyer. I, you know, my oyster, my second brother, Geordie, same experience, went to Sydney University to do occupational therapy. And then Shane is the younger one in the family. He went through that end of school period. And what we saw was that he fell off a cliff is how I describe it. He came out of a very good education system and was told, sorry, there's nothing for you. And where he found himself, after quite a lot of advocacy from my mum to kind of force him into the system, where he found himself was in what's called a day program, where five days a week, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., people with profound disability like Shane would just kind of sit around and not do very much. And we saw over the period of about nine months the massive impact that that had on Shane's health and mental well-being, and his health physically actually declined quite severely. And tragically, he died in 2011. So the reason I tell that story is because Fighting Chance is a solution to that problem. Fighting Chance emerged very directly from Shane's experience coming out of school. I was planning to be a lawyer, but sort of watching what happened to Shane made me and my brother Geordie both kind of stopped us in our tracks. And at the age of, I think I was 25, Geordie was 23, we started Fighting Chance with a mission around ensuring that people like Shane, all people with disability, but particularly our brother and his peers were fully included in society. And so today's Fighting Chance is a not-for-profit organization whose mission is around building social businesses to ensure that everyone is included. The final thing I'll say is building social businesses is a really important part of our mission. We don't believe in charity. We don't believe that Shane needed benevolent niceness from society. He needed opportunity. He was an 18-year-old guy who wanted to be out there like his older siblings, contributing and participating in the world. And so Fighting Chance's mission is around, as a not-for-profit, that's the sort of the legal structure, but our methodology is around how do we build businesses, good social enterprises, 
that include everybody. And so can you give me some examples of what you've actually achieved? Sure, sure. So under the Fine Chance Umbrella, we've started four social businesses. Just to sort of give the macro view, so we started in 2011, the old cliche, but very true, in my mum's garage in a, in a really flea-bitten futon couch. It was pretty much all that we were and lots of dreams. We opened our first little office in 2011. For probably three, four years, we were supporting just a handful of people, just trying to sort of graft and build the organization. Today, some 12 years later, Fighting Chance is a national organization now. We're supporting about 1,200 people with disability nationally. In Australia, we have locations in Sydney, of course, but also Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide. Uh, We're just opening in Canberra right now. And as I mentioned, we have four social businesses that we run under the Fighting Chance umbrella. Just to give one example of one of those, one of our social enterprises is called Jigsaw. Jigsaw is designed to solve the problem of people with disability who should absolutely be in mainstream employment, who have the aptitude and capability and desire to be in mainstream employment but who we see endemically excluded. And we know this cohort of people participate in the workforce at 53% compared to about 82% for the mainstream. So very high levels of unemployment amongst this cohort. But we, you know, knowing a lot of these people personally, we was able to see in sort of 2014, gosh, you know, this group of people need to be included. And so we built Jigsaw as a solution to that problem. As I mentioned, Jigsaw is a business. So Jigsaw is a digitization and information management business. We work with over 100 corporate and government clients, ranging from mines to schools to banks, right across the kind of the economy. And we perform that work in order to create training opportunities for job seekers with disability to kind of learn the, the employment skills, paid employment opportunities at award wage, and then transitional opportunities into mainstream jobs. And so, yeah, Jigsaw supports, I think, about 300 people, has directly employed about 180 people and has affected the transition of about 80 people into mainstream. Okay, so one of the things that you do with Jigsaw is to train people to get them into mainstream employment. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because what we were seeing when we're talking to, you know, often school leavers who had an aspiration to work in mainstream businesses who were absolutely capable of doing that, one of the things that we saw with that cohort of people was that often they were not afforded work experience opportunities, really hard to get your first job, really hard to get an employer to take a chance on you. And so people were not being afforded the opportunity to build all those sort of soft employment skills. That was one of the big barriers that we saw. So again, we designed Jigsaw as a business. Jigsaw is a business, but it uses the trading activity of the business to give people that entry-level training opportunity to then go on to be employed with Jigsaw, to kind of get a couple of years of paid experience on your CV, to then be able to go out to mainstream employers and say, here I am, look at my CV. I've got all these skills. I've had a couple of years of employment under my belt. I'm ready to and to transition to mainstream. How awesome is that? That's fantastic. I mean, we've only just started. There's so much more to do. There's so much more to do. But especially in the context of sort of the current economic moment that we're in, where society needs more workers, people with disability is such an untapped resource. And so, yeah, we're trying to tackle that problem. But across all the Fighting Chances work, it's all about, as I mentioned, trying to make sure that people with disability are fully included in every aspect of our economy. And so you mentioned that you're doing work with mines and banks and that sort of stuff. How do you find the people for Jigsaw to do the work for? That's a great question. When we first started out, the very first sort of break we got was I spoke at a Women in Local Government event in 2013. And there's a bit of that, you know, fake it till you make it. We talked about all these things that we could do. I mean, it wasn't, you know. It wasn't real It wasn't real. It was all what could be. And we had a couple of local governments come on board with us. In particular, Ringa Council came on with us and gave us a shot. So they gave us a contract to digitize their records. So they had all 
you know, boxes of paper of all the records of the council. And I live in the Northern Beaches. If I wanted to get some records about the sewerage, I'd have to call council and they'd dig out the paper and they'd, you know, take a month to send it to you. And they recognised that this wasn't a good experience for ratepayers or very kind of, you know, secure way to have so much paper, so many paper records all those documents and so they gave us a contract to do some of that work we were terrible to start with absolutely terrible we came within an inch of losing that contract but they gave us another chance and we really kind of you know got it together and became better at doing that work than the more mainstream suppliers that they had otherwise been working with so that was really our break and then from there you know it's been a case of word of mouth referrals we've also done a lot of you know bd work to go out there and talk to businesses about what we can do so a big client that we took on was Allianz Insurance. And so we're doing a lot of work for them now. So it's taken a long time to grow, but a combination of, I guess, hustle and reputation. Yeah, that's amazing. And tell me, what's Higher Up? Yeah, so Higher Up was the second organisation that we created. So Fighting Chance and its enterprises are all sort of not-for-profit structure. Higher Up was a for-profit organisation that we created in 2015. Again, based in Shane's experiences. So another of Shane's kind of regular experiences that we saw him sort of grapple with was needing support workers to come and help him, you know, in the morning, get out of bed, have his meds, get ready for the day. He needed 24-7 attendant care, someone to help him. And at the time, before NDIS, you have to call a local agency, they'd send someone to you that you'd have no control over who was coming, whether match for you, or indeed when they were coming, because often these workers would sort of be going from person to person and you'd sort of be at six in the morning sitting there waiting, not knowing who was coming, if someone was coming. And we just saw this was such a disempowering experience for Shane. And so we thought, well, what if we can change this to put Shane in control of his own workers and put Shane in the driving seat of who was coming into his life and when? And at the time, the technology was emerging. The Uber app was sort of the big thing. There was all this sort of marketplace technology of sort of connecting people directly. And so we thought, well, let's try and harness that technology to put Shane and his peers into control of their support workers. And so today, about seven, eight years later, Hire Up is an online platform. People with disability create a profile, support workers create a profile, and then they can use the site and the features within the site to find each other and kind of build relationships and connections. And yeah, and so Higher Up is the bigger of the things that we've started. Higher Up currently employs about 10,000 people nationally. 10,000 people? Yes, yeah, so we've got 10,000 support workers nice. nationally in any given year, 330 people here in Sydney in our sort of support office and supporting about 10,000 people with disability nationally as well. So yeah, leveraging the scalability of the technology to grow very fast. Yeah. So HireUp's a very significant business now. Yeah, that's massive. Well done, you. Thank you. Yes, it's a lot of hard work, I must say. As you will know, running these businesses is hard. When you see the difference it can make in people's lives, it makes it all worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I can understand that. There's some challenges with NDIS right now. Do you want to talk about that? Because unless you're actually involved in it, it's kind of noise in the background, right, for people who don't have any personal experience. So tell us what's going on in that space now. I mean, I think the big sort of headline, you know, in the headlines right now is about the cost blowout of the NDIS. But the first thing to say is just, you know, for me it's a real shame that that's the thing that sort of, as you said, is in the background for most people. But, you know, most people have sort of heard those headlines and they're concerned about it, which is fair enough that the numbers are blowing out quite badly. But the first thing to say about the NDIS is that it has been transformational. As a piece of social reform, Australians should be so proud of the NDIS and what it is. And to, just to put that into context, I'll give an example. So when my family came back, we came back to Australia from the UK in 2007, I think, and we came into an Australian disability system, which was based on sort of ration system. So 
the government would allocate a certain amount of money in the budget for disability supports every year. So I don't know, a million dollars for shower chairs. And then people who needed shower chairs would have to queue up and say, can I have a shower chair, please? And as soon as that million dollars was run out, well, then it's sorry, there's no more shower chairs. You have to wait for the next budget. So when we came back to Australia, my brother needed a shower chair. He was a man and he was heavy for my mum to put into the shower, needed to sit in a chair. And we were told there was an 18-month wait list for shower. You won't be able to shower for, you know, which is just preposterous, right? The other example was my mum was not super coping and sort of needed to find out about sort of accommodation opportunities for Shane, was told that the emergency wait list was 18 years. And if Shane wanted to get into accommodation, she just had to abandon him. That was the system. That was the Australian disability care system at the time. Oh, your poor mum. Horrific and in crisis, horrific, and left people with disability without the basic supports they need. So what the NDIS has done is it's changed that sort of ration system into a needs-based system. It says if you need a shower chair, in our society you are insured by the society to get what you need and we'll be the, you know, the society will be there for you if you need it. And so now if you go and you have an individual assessment with the NDIA, if you need a shower chair, you get a shower chair, which is obviously a vastly better system. And as I said, the NDIS has transformed tens of thousands of lives. I always start with that because it's just important to put it into context. But I think what has happened is that the sort of the cost envelope of the NDIS has blown out from where they thought it would be. So the original sort of projections were about $24 billion would be the sort of price tag of the NDIS. At rollout, where this year we're at $35 billion and, you know, the forward estimates see that, that continuing to grow significantly. So the Labor government is sort of thinking through now, how do you get that growth back into something that is a little bit more manageable and doesn't, I guess, put the future of the NDIS at risk in the sense of taxpayers withdrawing their support for the scheme because it comes too expensive. That's a concern that I think all of us in the sector have to take seriously. So Bill Shorten announced a couple of weeks ago a six-step plan to bring the NDIS sort of back into the original trajectory. And I've got confidence that those are the right areas that they're focusing in. We're also lucky to have a minister. Bill Shorten was part of setting up the NDIS. So it's very fortuitous that we have this minister in this position at this important time get the NDIS back into sustainable growth that can be there forever. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk about you for a bit. You're the CEO, right? And you're a very young founder. Talk to me about how you manage yourself and growing the business and all the challenges that would have come with that. Because you said it didn't start easy, right? You weren't doing a great job at the very beginning. Oh, no, years, years of just treading water, really, because I just didn't have the skills to know how to make things move forwards. We've been doing this now for 12 years. I always say the first three years really were kind of wasted in the sense that we were just sort of let work out what the heck we were doing and learning. We started Fighting Chance when I was 25. It was my prior job to being CEO of Fighting Chance was being a travel booker at a logistics company. Big jump. jump. And not one that I was necessarily qualified for. Or Well, you didn't even know what you were letting yourself in for, right? No, but that was important. The naivety and the ignorance of what it all meant was really important. I think if I knew then what I know now, I may not have taken on the challenge. You know, I was a six-year-old selling lemonade. I was the person going to parents. That doesn't surprise me, Laura. That does not surprise me at all. The thing I say is that I can read business. I don't know where it's come from or whatever, but ranging from, you know, lemonade stands when I was little through to taking my student bar at my university and took over that just for the sake of it. It's just always been something that I've just really understood. and customer service and sort of the how you run a business has come naturally to me. Also, writing skills was really critical. You know, communication skills, I think, is the most important unlock for those first couple of years, particularly setting up a charity when you're having to 
reach out to others and ask for support and explain free in, in writing. But yeah, just trial and error. So I mean, even today, 12 years later, I always say that, you know, today is my first day running a company of this size. Tomorrow will be my first day running a company of the organization size tomorrow. I'm sort of constantly learning and growing. I'm surrounded by a lot of, you know, amazing mentors, people who've walked the path before who I can learn from. And yeah, I also think, you know, I just take a gentle approach to mistakes and, you know, sort of a growth mindset. Yeah, to- about that is we have this dialogue in my business. Whenever we make a mistake or screw something up, we sort of look at each other and go, hmm, let's get curious about how we could have done that differently. So with Finding Chance, we've probably had three moments of total catastrophe where we've been sort of inches from the whole thing imploding. And, you know, not so much in the last couple of years, but certainly in the first sort of six or so years or a couple of very spiky occasions. But what I learned through those was, you know, horrible to kind of go through those periods of failure or something that you've tried not working or making a mistake that's led to something, you know, the organization getting close to the edge. What I realized when you sort of come through that and you get to the other side and you keep moving, look back sort of six months later, what I realized is, whoa, that was the biggest moment of learning and growth. And in these very difficult moments, there's just enormous opportunity to reflect, understand what went wrong. The commitment that you make to yourself never to put yourself back in that situation when it's sort of been very kind of hairy, the determination to learn and grow from it. And yeah, so for me, those were the most significant moments of acceleration in terms of the organization's capability and in terms of my own. And so at this point, I really embrace the difficult moments, and there are lots of them, because they're opportunities for refinement, for improvement, for clarifying what we're doing, how we're doing it, and sort of getting better at my craft. And it is so important to be brave enough to go, you know what, I really screwed that up. This is actually on me, whether it's on me personally or decisions that I allowed others around me to make. Not everybody's prepared to look at themselves in the mirror and go, yep, that was on me. So that's such an important skill, right? Yeah. A colleague of mine actually said to me recently, he said, you know, you have unusual ability to learn in public was what he said. And I sort of, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? He said, oh, you know, you'll just watch that, you know, something's gone wrong and you can see the clogs turning in your eyes of, oh, what did I do? How did that happen? And I've never, ever shied away from saying, I blew that, guys. That was a mistake. When the person said that to me, I thought, I wonder why that is. That's interesting. I mean, I've never occurred to me to do anything other, but I thought, you know, I wonder why. And what it came to was, for me, this work is purpose-driven. This work is about trying to create a world that is better for people with disability than the world that my brother lived. As I mentioned, my brother sadly died. But for me, what I want to achieve by the end of my life is that no young person with disability has to experience the challenges and the hardships that my brother faced. That's what I'm about. And so I'll do anything I have to do to get to that outcome. I'll learn whatever lesson. I will take whatever accountability or responsibility I have to take and I will just use it to grow because for me, it's about the steps I have to take to get back onto the path and being on the path is the most important thing and who cares about if you look stupid or you, you know. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about your purpose. Anybody watching this can see how driven you are by that purpose and that's an incredible thing to have. I'm very grateful for it because it means that you don't have to work, you know, like it's that piece about you don't have to work a day in your life if you love what you do. And I wake up every day just so hungry to go after it. So I'm so grateful for having a strong sense of purpose. Yeah, it's not about me. I will take any consequence I'll wear and put as much egg on my face as I need to. I don't care. I'm going to cut off my arm if it's going to get us to where we have to go. 
And I found that if you just do that and you own it, it inspires others around you to well, learn and own yeah, it too. I was about to say that. Google did some studies on high-performance teams and one of the most important things is psychological safety. And because you're so willing to own up to and learn from your mistakes, you're empowering your team to do the same, right? Because they trust you not to lose your temper or to fire them out of anger. They trust you to explore how to do it better next time. Yes. When we started this, uh, again, maybe three, four, five years, we were a bunch of 20-year-olds. We were all just learning on the spot. I mean, the only way up was for us all to learn. None of us had the pre-existing skills to draw on. But what I have learned is that if you create an environment, you show you're willing to do that for yourself and you create an environment where others can learn and grow, the growth that happens in other people is what powers then the impact that you have. Nothing better than watching for myself, but going along with people that I'm working closely with and, you know, just everyone's capacity growing and expanding and you get better and you get faster and you get sharp. That's the best. And again, you know, we have to do that to get to the outcome. So yeah, I think it was forged in those early years of there was sort of no choice, but certainly that's how I try to lead now too. Yeah, amazing. And so how many people are in your management team? If you, I don't know how the language you use around it, but you know what I mean? Yeah, there are nine in the higher up executive leadership team. So currently I'm CEO of higher up and there's nine in our ELT. And then on the Fighting Chance side, I'm just a founder at Fighting Chance at this point, but I work closely with the ELT there. I think there are 12 in the ELT at Fighting Chance. Yeah, okay. So they do a lot of good work. Small number of people do a lot of good work. And what's next for you? Oh, that's a huge question. Continuing to push ahead, really. I mean, I'm proud of the impact that we've achieved over the last 12 or so years, but it's just scratching the surface. And for me, I spend a lot of time in my memory of those challenging years for my brother Shane after he left school. That was a really hard time for him and for the family watching him struggle to find a pathway that was available to him. And I know, as I stand here right now, 12 years later, there are hundreds of thousands of young people with disability out there right now who are in the same situation. So for me, it's just about how do we, again, get better, go faster, get better at what we do, hone our craft to get to as many people as we possibly can. And then I think beyond that, you know, I'd like to grow our work in Australia much more, but then beyond that, the challenge of disability in developing countries is very substantial world's population have a disability and people with disability in the developing world are some of the most disadvantaged and marginalized people you know on our planet my husband is egyptian so i've sort of seen that firsthand in the egyptian context so yeah international development after we've kind so of basically global domination is what we're after that's it i just don't want anyone in the world to have to feel isolated or excluded and so keep chipping away at that and get as far as i can in my lifetime i guess yeah it's absolutely remarkable i'm so glad that Pete chose Fighting Chance as the charity of choice for REINSW this year so that I got to meet you and learn more about what you do. If people that are watching and listening would like to find out more about Fighting Chance and Higher Up, how do they do that? Yeah, so Fighting Chance's website is www.fightingchance.org.au and Higher Up is www.higherup, that's H-I-R-E-U-P.com.au. So I think our websites are the best place to find us. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for giving me the platform. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Courageous Conversations with thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agency's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.